Welcome to The Daily Sales Show, hosted by Sell Better. Well, let's kick things off here. Today, you're talking about how to write messaging that converts. Messaging is our theme for the week. Every day this week, we're going to go live and talk about cold messaging and how you can make changes to better your messaging results. Let me introduce you to the man in the room today. Mr. Caspian Luke of Gong is back with us. This guy's energy is just like mine. Welcome back to the show, my friend. <laughs> oh, it's good to be back and you flatter me. I don't know if it's on your level, but it's, uh, you know, we think of one so I'm excited. Yeah, we do. I think we do. We feed off each other really well. Caspian is a great expert when it comes to cold messaging. Before we kick this show off, go ahead and scan this QR code and check out our new website, sellbetter.xyz. We're real proud of the team that we've built there and the talent that we're pulling in to be a part of the show. So check that out. Uh, make sure that you check out our YouTube channel as well. This is where you can find great highlights, stuff from the show, even some new things that we've put out recently that are pretty solid. I got to give a big hat tip, even though I'm not wearing a hat today, to our friends over at Gong, longtime partners. They have put together some incredible resources with us over the years, and it's no surprise that we're dropping a great one in the chat for you right now. Most people sell to a specific persona, the CFO is one of the most difficult personas to sell to. And that's why Gong and I have teamed up to put together this great guide for how to sell to the CFOs more effectively. So go get this. It's a free resource that you can take advantage of right now. You know how thrilled we are to drop good value in the chat for our audience. We're going to talk about a few things today, some crucial steps if you missed your quota. We're going to talk about out-of-office messages. This is like a hidden gem that a lot of people look overlook. And then we're going to talk about some simple changes that you can make that are going to change the results for your cold messaging. Let's dive right in. But before we do, I'm going to go ahead and launch this question so that you guys can let us know who you are. What are you, Brad? That is what we need to know right now. Are you an SDR? Are you an AE? Are you a leader? This is how we tailor the conversation to the folks that are in the room. So if you see me kind of pivot to a certain direction, it's going to be because the folks in the room demand it, right? Uh, all right. Let's kick things off right here while everybody takes part in this question. You talked about changes that you can make after you miss quota. I think something like 80% was projected of salespeople to miss their quota this last quarter. So what are these five steps? You took them yourself and they really changed your results. So break these down for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I won't, I won't show away from it, though I'm happy with, uh, though I enjoy being a salesperson, there are high highs and low lows. And one of those low lows is when I missed quota in April of last year. Mm -hmm. And I missed quota by one year. I was an SDR at the time. And it was, it was, it was honestly, it felt like the worst thing that could have happened. I was kind of catastrophizing. But at the time I was crushed and given how close I was to quota, but still given that I missed it, I began to overthink everything that I did during the month and question, you know, could I send more emails? Could I have made another call? Um, yeah. Should I have worked longer hours? Whatever the case may be. If I'd stayed for one more hour, I might have hit it. <laughs> exactly. You never know, right? You never know who's online. Uh, but that's where I say step one is clearing your head, right? It's important to take a little bit of time away from the job um, because, of course, it's important. We want to strive to be better each day, but we need to make sure we're giving ourselves the time to unwind, recharge, so that we can bring our best selves to that next month, right? Because being ourselves up over past results is not going to be a good way that we can move forward. However, we can help 
our understanding of what happened in the past inform us as to best steps to take in the future. So that's where I actually say step two is important, meeting with a top performer, right? I'm sure we all know a top one or two or three people at our company or our team yeah. Yeah. absolutely each month. Yeah. Seems to be the same people every time too. Right, right. The audacity of those people, yeah. consistent success. The nerve. <laughs> I know, right. Um, now, the great thing is, is we're, we're all on the same side, right? We're all trying to further our company's mission if we're in sales. And so that plays in our benefit because we can learn from those people. I wound up meeting with a top performer on my team and, and just getting an understanding of, say, of saying, hey, what has been working for you? What do you do each month to be successful? Because I thought I knew what worked, but clearly my path, clearly my approach was not a consistent source of success. And that began to open my eyes to things that I didn't know I sure. didn't know. Right. So for example, I was doing a lot of, and this plays into once you meet with the top performer, you're able to get an understanding of what they're doing and how that relates to your step three strengths and weaknesses. So you've, you know, you've cleared your head, you've met with the top performer. Now it's time to analyze your own strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. When I met with this top performer, they mentioned, Hey, um, you're just calling and emailing. I get, you know, one to three meetings each month from LinkedIn and I didn't, I don't know why I hadn't considered leveraging LinkedIn or social media at all. And that began to help me understand, oh, you know, could I bring more personality into my outreach? Could I broaden my outreach a bit? And that even, um, that even helped me begin to think about other methods of outreach that we didn't speak about that could be beneficial. So I know I was online. There's no, no, you're fine. There, there's still there's still a couple of more steps there. I want to share the results here. We've got mostly SDRs in the room, mostly AEs. Uh, let me get a one in the chat if you guys track things like opens and clicks and reply rates. Uh, if you have something that tracks that for you, one in the chat, that's kind of where we're at. Uh, here's why I say it is because he's talking about step three, which is analyze your strengths and weaknesses. If you're looking at that data that you that you have access to and you have a really high open rate, but you don't have a high meeting rate or a high click rate or your call to action doesn't have a high reply rate, then you're really good at capturing attention and not getting deleted, but you're not very good at getting somebody to do something after they read your email strengths and weaknesses. I can get a lot of people to open my email, but if I don't schedule any meetings, I have to make a change. We're going to talk more about changes. Okay. Talk about creating a plan of action because I am one of that's guilty of this. I will say I need to change, but then I don't actually write it down. I don't actually make the change because I don't create any documentation about what I'm looking to change. Yeah. No, and it's sometimes things are easier said than done, right? So uh, totally. Once you have a chance to analyze your strengths and weaknesses and you understand, okay, I need to do this and I need to make a change here. For me, it was, I need to be better overcoming objections. And I need to broaden my outreach, right? Leverage things like social selling and bring in, make my emails a bit more concise. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, I wound up creating, um, I had the benefit of having good friends who I work with who were excellent cold callers and email writers. So I created a plan of action where I set up time every week to do an objection handling uh, role play, if you will, with one of my best friends who happens to be a phenomenal cold caller. And then on top of that, also over time for the next call it like two to three weeks after that i would send my aligned ae 
the first step emails that I was planning to send out. And they would kind of give me like a thumbs up or thumbs down. Now, they don't have the time to rewrite the email for me, but they just seem to give me high level guidance to say, hey, call to action needs to be stronger. Hey, the you got to make the value prop a bit more concise, right? Because my goal was writing personalized emails, but in a way that wasn't, you know, a mini novel. So that was, and I had time set up every week with my AE to kind of go through the feedback that I'd gotten and implement those changes. And week over week, I was getting a little bit better, right? I was not an email like aficionado by the end of those three weeks, but I was in a much better place than having not taken any action at all. And I just kept on doubling down on, um, I just kept taking consistent action is really what it was. Then that comes down to step five, which was executing. Yes. That is the main ingredient of all the steps. You can take all four of the first steps, but if you don't execute in step five, you're probably going to fall short of the goals that you set for yourself, let alone the goals that you've got set for you, which sometimes look a little bit different. Uh, we talked about easy changes. Sometimes we look for that low-hanging fruit, the thing that's not going to take us too much time, but it's going to dramatically impact our results. And the example that I gave you was the sign-offs. I changed my sign-off from, and let me know in the chat which one you use. Write it in the chat. Is it is it sincerely? Is it regards? Is it best? Is it all the best? What is your sign-off that you go with in the chat? That's what I want. <laughs> take care. Oh, I didn't think about take care. <laughs> take care. I mentioning of Drake each time, but I love I love good take. Care. Look at people combining the best and the regards. I think that I think best regards, right? Like Okay, so here's something you can try, and this is an easy one. Try, I'll follow up. This changed everything for me because it's like a subliminal signal that you're coming back. Caspian, you had an easy one that people could change, and you were talking about the PS. So let's talk about that. Oh, yeah. No, and I uh, I began adding... So, and this is really a product of my missing quota i wanted to bring my personality more into my outreach especially my emails i love making my emails a bit goofy and you know infusing a little bit of humor and ps to me was a great way to you know maybe downplay a firmer call to action that i just made or add a little bit of a of a joke or if i'd sent someone you know maybe i'd sent someone a gift and i'd written them this long email i could always say ps either way hope you enjoy the book or whatever the case may be right? It's just a nice, soft way to further can, you know, show your personality. And then I realized that Lavender actually publishing some sort of a study that adding a PS increases reply rates like 70%. That was exactly right. Like that was, uh, I did not know how to, at the time, but it makes sense when you think about it, right? It's unique. It is, uh, and helps you like add a little something, but in, and in a more casual I see an opportunity for like bookended personalization and relevance, or maybe like bookend on one end personalization and on the back end with the PS a little bit more relevance, right? Or vice versa. I think there's some room there for like looking at an email and saying, oh, I could bookend with these two things. And the rest of my template is static, right? It's my template. We're going to talk more about templates as we move forward. Okay. Uh, be sure and put your questions that you have for Caspian or myself in the Q&A section, because I want to leave time at the end to answer as many questions about your own cold outreach that you guys want answers to. Uh, you mentioned that when you met with your top performer, which was one of your five steps, he, he added the social game. They were like, yo, like I booked two or three meetings from social and you added that. 
So let's talk a little bit about what that conversation was like. What did you start doing on social to add that personalization, to show that personality, and to increase your response rates in your cold messaging? Yeah. And honestly, before I do, I just want to delineate this because I think there's like a really big myth around social selling. Okay. Social selling and establishing a brand are two very different things. So I just want to mention that you can be successful uh, what I refer to social selling as is engaging with prospects via direct message. And I want to be clear, you can have one follower or a hundred thousand followers. It does not matter. Um, I just want to be really clear about that because I think sometimes people are like, oh, but I don't have this following or that following. Just as I've gotten out of the way, going now to answer your question, um, what I began to understand is that what I enjoy doing is building rapport. And what I'm what I'm best at is building rapport with prospects. Yeah. So when it comes to social selling, I take a very relationship-based approach, or one of the major approaches I take is a relationship-based approach. So for me, yes, I enjoy it, you know, adding humor, all that stuff, but I will actually first start by not even connecting with my prospect. I'll like and comment on their posts for probably the first like week before I even connect with them. Yeah. Then step two, and I know this is crazy because I love personalization. But I send them a blank connection request. Uh, anecdotally, I can speak to this, and there's also data to prove this, that uh, if you think about it, who puts info in connection requests? Like, on the top of your head, right? Son burden of a salesperson. Like, yes, yes or no? Yes or no in the chat? Do you personalize your connection requests, or do you leave them blank? Yes or no in the chat? Do you personalize your connection request? Look at all the no's. Some yeses. I see some yeses creeping up in there. Some big old bleezies. I see them. Go ahead, buddy. Well, if it, right? And if it works, it works. And that's where I'll say, I personally take the approach of, I don't put anything in the note unless I have a really good reason to. If I bump into someone on the street, if I meet someone at a conference, or if I send them a gift, like that's a, to me, that's a very good reason. But, or if it's a referral, right? Yeah. Then it's like, hey, James told me to reach out to you, whatever the case may be. Normally, nothing in the connection request. Once they've accepted my connection request though, I will send them a message pure value, meaning I'm not going to mention my company at all. And I'm what I'm doing is I'm optimizing for a response, but I'm thinking if this is the only message they ever receive from me, is this going to either make them more knowledgeable, make their daily lives easier, make their job easier? So an example is like, if you just started a new job, I'd say like, hey, congratulations on your new role. Um, I'm sure, you know, starting a new role can be challenging. So here's an article on how to crush your first 30, 60, 90 days in role. And not written by my company or anything like that, just pure value. Or maybe someone's, you know, gotten a promotion or just going to a trade show and you send them like a best trade show practices article, right? So just want them to engage. Engagement is the goal. And you mentioned trade shows right there. And there are a couple trade shows happening right now. Inbound and Saster are going down this week. Here's my question to everyone in the room. Are your prospects going to be at an event this week? Because if they are, and you know that, there is a high likelihood that no matter what you're sending, you're going to have a lot of out-of-office message replies. And that's what I want to focus on right now, because this is the hidden gem that a lot of people sleep on, and you don't want to sleep on this. So let's talk about how we leverage out-of-office replies, Caspian. What do you do? Yeah. So Ari, number one, there's some really important things you can get from out of office replies, right? I'm sure we've all been there where we're using whatever our data scraper tool is and you can't find their cell phone number. And then you send them an email and you get the out of office response. 
And lo and behold, it says text, you know, this is urgent, text me at XYZ number. And you're like, why did I send, you know, why didn't I send her an email like on a holiday or in here? So I will say it can be gold for finding um, additional ways to contact your ideal prospect. Yeah. You can find, or actually I'll go in this one to the order. You can find number one info on additional stakeholders and their email addresses, right? It might say if someone's on maternity leave, it might say while I'm out, or they may also mention, um, they might also mention additional decision makers that you should be speaking to, right? So that can be a really good way just to get clarity on who you should be reaching out to. But of course, you can also get information on your prospect themselves and find a mobile number that wasn't available on whatever the provider it was that you're using. So there's a lot that you can do. Uh, and there's also ways to build rapport, but I want to take a step back. I know I'm kind of rambling. No, we throw a lot of our audience here today, and there are a lot of things being talked about as far as your outgoing messaging goes. If you look at some of these results right here, it looks like a lot of folks don't know if their prospects are going to be at an event this week. Uh, that's a good thing for you to know. You got to know about the events in your space. But 16, 17% of our voters say, yes, absolutely. They're going to get out of office replies. Uh, one of the other things that you get from an out of office reply is usually a return date. And I want to know in the audience, Caspian and I have different opinions about this. So I want to know in the audience, how many days do you wait when you get a return date? How many days do you wait before you reach out? Is it one day after the return, two days after the return? I'm very interested in this. I see two. I see one. Uh, well, look at two to three right there. Uh, two to three. I am a two-day person because I want them to have time to catch up and dig out of that email, uh, that inbox, so that my stuff can actually be seen and doesn't get ignored. Caspian, when I said that to you, you were like, I'm a little more aggressive. Uh, talk to me about your one-day approach. <laughs> yeah, the technical term is pleasantly persistent. but uh, <laughs> you know, <I> Pleasantly <laughs> persistent, I love it. Uh, yeah, I take one, I do one day because to your point, I don't want to, I don't want to message them the day they return. I do want to give them a little bit of time to yeah. dig themselves out of their email hole. I do think though that um, sometimes time is in the essence. And especially if I'm trying to build in some rapport based on they are going out of office, right? We don't always know why people are out of office. Maybe it is for something like a conference or maybe if they're taking a, if they are out of office around a specific holiday, it is likely, you know, you got to be mindful if you make an assumption, but it's likely that they are taking a vacation. Uh, but of course, you don't know. They could be going to a funeral or something that's very, you know, something that's very somber. So you want to be mindful of asking them how their time out of office was. Well, but I enjoy taking, I enjoy being a bit more aggressive because I think it allows me to uh, have more, basically hit the ground running with them faster and stay top of mind, right? Depending on how long that week is, right? If you wait two days after, if they came back after Labor Day and you wait two days, you can probably only send one email that week, right? You're probably yeah. going to send them an email on like Thursday and that's it. I could theoretically send them an email like Wednesday and then Friday and I can call them in between. So just different different approaches. But that's where I say one day allows you to still give them a little bit of respect, a little bit of time, but you can follow up with a bit more frequency. I, I do. I, I like where your head is. I just feel like if it's me and my return date is the 9th and I got an email on the 10th, I would default as a buyer to be like, Hey, 
I've been out of office and I'm buried right now, but I haven't forgot about you. Even if I'm being courteous, I feel like yeah. I would say something to that effect, which a seller should be happy about, right? At least you got yeah. that reply. That's a courteous reply. Uh, you had an example of an out of office message and I want to show it because this is a standard. I see this all the time. Now, I love the text me at, let me ask you, do you immediately go for the text? Hey, got your oh, ho oh, oh, let's connect. There goes it. I mean, I'm not available. So no, I, what I do know is I do pick the number in my CRM. Oh, that's um, right. Right. So I made sure I have it. Um, normally, no, unless it is the, no, I would say, yeah. If anything, texting is something I could leverage more. I do. There's unique instances where I might leverage it, but no, normally I would say I just note that so that I have their information. Because of course, I know we've been talking about giving them time to respond to email. It's true. I, I'm going to email them and call them that person in their back, especially now that they have their number. And that's where you can ask, hey, how was your vacation? Or how was your time on vocals? Or if you know, again, if they're taking time out this week, how was test or how was whatever conference they're at? So I will just note that and then leverage it once they're back in the office. Interesting. Uh, I... I'm a big fan of saving text numbers in my phone as contacts so that it's easy to find these humans. And when they decide to call me back, if they call me from that mobile number, it shows their name and I can answer the phone and be like, what's up, Caspian? And I, instead of like scrambling to for my CRM to be like, who's this calling me and trying to like look up the number? Don't act, don't act like we'd all have not done that, yo. We have all done that. Oh, yeah. We got some great questions coming into the QA right now. Before we pivot to this next segment of the show, uh, I'm gonna drop a link to tomorrow's show. Remember, this entire week is all about cold messaging. So tomorrow we are live with how to hook your prospects' attention. You need this one. So go and sign up for tomorrow's show right there in the chat. Here's my question to you now. Uh, do you update your templates? And if so, when? And if you're feeling frisky, let me know in the chat. Do you write your own templates or does somebody write them for you? If you're feeling frisky, you can tell me in the chat. Uh, so let's talk about changing templates, Caspian. When do you change a template? Uh, what's a good cadence that people should be looking at for changing their templates on a more regular basis? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's funny, I know we, uh, you know, in speaking to you, I know I mentioned that I'm a bit, I am a bit obsessive before I send each email. I read it out loud like 30 times, just in case I missed something, you know, maybe, but if I'm using the wrong version of there, right, there, there, or there, yep. um, whatever the case may be. If autocorrect screwed you. <laughs> exactly. Well, and this is the thing is it happens infrequently enough that I will catch something on like the 12th read through and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad. So it, it justifies my reading through a lot. But as a result, I normally tend to make changes to my templates on the fly before I send them. Mm -hmm. And if I notice that I'm making the same change consistently, right? Like changing the verbies in my call to action or in or in where I'm like framing their problem or in my value problem. If I make that change, call it like three or more times in a week, then I'll change it. I'll change it right away. So I would say on average, I probably change a template once a week, but it is a product of me needing to make a consistent change to individual templates. So then at that point, I'm just, I, I just feel that it's probably going to save me time to go to the source to go to the template and yeah. change it there. 
I loved that answer when you said, I try to note the change that I'm making consistently. And if it's consistent enough, I go back and change the template. I think that's a great marker. It looks like a lot of folks in the room are changing on a monthly basis. I admire our 23% of the voters that are constantly daily updating their templates. I think I do a lot of updating and personalization and relevance in real time. I'll have a template, but then when it goes ready, it gets ready to go out. It doesn't go out automatically before I lay eyes on it and say, okay, is this effective the way it is? Or what can I change to add to, to this and let this person know I wrote it specifically for them? That's been a practice of mine for some time now. I like automated emails, but I don't like automation to not give me the opportunity to change things if it's necessary. So great job for everybody that took part in those questions. Uh, let me ask you this, when it comes to changing those templates, where should people be looking for the things to change or add inside that template? Where should they be? What should they be looking for? Yeah, it's a really good question. And you can make an argument that you can change every part of your template, but definitely, you know, your personalization line, you want to make sure that you're using fresh and new language. For me, a big area of opportunity was when I was, when I was a newer SDR and newer to sales was changing the verbiage in the portion where I'm framing the problem. When I was newer, I would say, you know, as VP of sales or as XYZ persona, right? I know you're struggling with this. The truth is I didn't, I didn't know, right? I don't know what their, uh, I didn't know what their actual pain points were. I'm, I'm guessing, right? Like, let's be honest. I'm taking an educated guess based on their company and their industry and their role as to the changes they're facing on a regular basis. Now, I'm guessing doesn't sound great in an email, so I use the verbiage, I changed I know to I'd imagine yes. in my templates now, when framing the problem, because it still shows that I am, that I'm, yeah, again, taking an educated guess, but it also gives them the space to correct me. Because again, and I know, I mean, there's a lot of best practices when it comes to email, but if I'm telling you like, hey, as XYZ, I'd imagine you're focused on this. If I'm wrong, it gives you the space to say, hey, Caspian, actually, I'm not focused on that as much. Yep. I'm more focused on this other aspect of what it is that my responsibilities for my role are. And chances are my company is still going to be able to solve for that other problem. But if I say, I know you're focused on this and you say, no, you're not, there's not really anywhere I can respond to that. Yep. Right. And it they're, just, they're thinking when they read that, oh, you're way off. <laughs> right it just makes me seem overconfident and underinformed which is not oh, i love that overconfident and underinformed is never a uh, image that you want to give to your prospects uh some really interesting things around those changes you said uh, i'd imagine i like we believe so one of the the email best practices that i give to people is after you write your template or even after you personalize and make relevant your template that you've adjusted in real time Look to the left of your email. See how many eyes you got right there. I think this, I want that, I would like to, I, I, you know, if there are too many eyes, don't send that email. That email is about you and not about them. And that is something you can make a quick change to. Just a good best practice. Look to the left margin. Is there too many eyes there? Change that stuff and make it about them and not about you. Uh, great stuff. Okay. Before we get to Caspian's final thought, I'm teeing him up so he can get, get started thinking about it. Let's answer a few questions from our incredible audience. This is the time, y'all. Get your questions in the Q&A because here we go. This one comes from Chris Smith. It's got the most upvotes. 
When it comes to the PS, do you suggest putting that PS in between the CTA and your sign-off or after your signature? Good question. Would you, sorry, just cut out for a second. Would you mind repeating? No, it's fine. Uh, so Chris Smith asks, when it comes to the PS, do you think putting the PS between the CTA and your sign-off is better or right. after the signature? Would you mind reading that? I think it just cut out for a second. After the signature or between the CTA and your sign-off for that PS? Oh, uh, great question. I do. Uh, oh, that's a good question. I do. Uh, I do my signature, and then after the signature is where I put my PS because I do okay. want it to be at the very last thing. Actually, let me take that back. Sorry, my signature is always going to be at the very bottom. Like I have my auto-filled signature, but I write best Caspian at the end of all of my emails, so it goes after I write. So it's a good question. I've never been asked this before. It goes after I write best Caspian, then it's my PS, and then my signature is at the very bottom. Um, but my signature is like auto populated there. So I wouldn't, yeah, it would take a lot of work for me to put it after my signature, actually. So yeah, between when I write best Caspian. Okay. That, so that's specific for you. Chris Smith, what I would suggest is that you A B test that particular PS and you want to see which one performs best for your buyers, your personas. Uh, most of the time, and I think Beck Holland does this great bit about how our eyes function when we read emails. We look at the top, who's reaching out to me, and then our eyes kind of do a C motion towards the bottom, where it's like, what are they asking me for? And then we go back to the top and we fill this in for our context. That's how our brains and our eyes act when we get cold emails. So if that's true, then you can A-B test that PS. Where does it function best? Do they miss it if I put it above the signature or do they see it more often and reply to that when I put it below the signature? That would be my recommendation for you, my friend. This one comes from anonymous attendee. We always appreciate anonymous attendees asking questions. Uh, does the personalization, and then in parentheses, got icebreaker there. Does the icebreaker matter in the first email or is it better to use shorter emails focusing on the prospect's pain and the value your service will provide. I love this question. I wish you would have put your name there because I gave you great credit for it. <laughs> so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. Uh, oh, that's my respectful pushback. So I'm going to say, I think you can do a concise, uh, personalized like hook at the beginning. I will also call out that I am a sucker for like personalization. I think that as the world goes to more and like, as email becomes more and more uh, overlapped with AI and as AI gets more and more infused into email outreach, the bar for what a good email looks like is going to increase, which means that there is always going to be a place for hyper-personalization because there are going to be things right now. There are things on like relevancies and jokes that humans can make that AI can't quite make. Who knows what the future holds? There might be a time when that isn't the case. But my point is, I would still start off with a short, right? Like short, uh, one line, little hook saying congratulations on your new role or, uh, you know, whatever the relevant portion is. And then, yeah, keep the remainder of the email as concise as possible. I think there are strong emails that can be like four sentences or less, right? Uh, but generally speaking, we want the hook, block problem frames. We want the call, we want the value prop and we want the call to action, right? So yeah. That can be yeah, I, I like this question because it does kind of have, it does include an entire email structure if you look at this question, uh, a personalization, an icebreaker, short email, uh, 
pain, the pain point is mentioned and the value proposition, uh, that is a great structure. My advice to you, Anonymous, is to look at what you're personalizing and remove that personalization or icebreaker with the B test. If you want to know, it's all about the persona. And again, uh, let me drop this link one more time. If you sell to the CFO, you can get this resource for selling to the CFO. Every persona buys a little bit different, right? So you need to know your persona. Does the messaging that you're currently sending register with the persona that you sell best to? If so, keep it up. If not, don't do that kind of messaging. Change it up. Find what works. Pragmatism is the religion of sales, Anonymous. So test everything that you're doing. This one comes from Lila Nielsen. A cold lead, do you find it easier to follow up with them first on LinkedIn or email them first? Or do they fire off at the same time? I find this hard to do at scale. Lila, you are a seller after my own heart. Caspian, what do you think? So I, I am a big fan. I don't know if we have spoken about the Egoji sequence before, but I'm a big fan of what day one of the Egoji sequence looks like, which is messaging people on all in all three methods in rapid succession. So I normally do email, call, LinkedIn. So oh, I call first. Oh, you call first. Okay. Well, hey, no worries. I email first because then I can see if they've opened email and then I can reference it. Um, but hey, if you want to call first, that's completely fair. And maybe that's a if you have a lead or someone that's like, if you have somebody who you might who know who you know might be interested in your product, call is probably the best way to do it first. Yeah. But my point is, regardless of what you do first, those three methods in quick succession, I think, are a good way to begin because some people live on LinkedIn. I've had people who I cold called and sent emails to for a month, and then I, you know, and then I started reaching out to them on LinkedIn. They responded right away. Other yeah. people, you reach out on LinkedIn, you reach out on email, they don't do anything, you call them, they pick up right away. So different right. prospects, the way you mentioned different personas buy differently, different prospects like live in different areas. And so it's important to take that broad approach. But I would be yeah. curious to give you a thought. No, it's great. It's a great, It's I love what you're saying here. I call first because if I get the chance to leave a voice message, I'll stop the message with, I'm about to shoot you an email right now. The subject line is... Okay. Right. And that's how I leave the message. Then I shoot the email out with the subject line that I reference. Then I send the LinkedIn message. And this is one of the few times that I will actually customize that message when I'm doing this one, two, three approach, because I'll customize that connection request with closing the loop here, looking forward to connecting James cell phone number. This makes me a huge, it's like raising your hand and being like, I'm a human being and not a robot. Right. So Lila, I would definitely try that one, two, three approach stemming or being inspired from the Agoji sequence, uh, that is a great way to impact your audience and see like, what is the channel that is most acceptable for my buyers? Which channel do they often choose? Because that's going to end up being your dominant channel or the one that you start with, I think, maybe. Uh, it all depends on what the results are. Great question from Lila right there. These are great questions. Uh, okay. Excuse me. Best email campaigns. Do you? And we are doing a show about sequences coming up on the 7th. Again, we're talking about cold email. Uh, Maria, will you please drop the sequence show? There it is. Gosh, man, y'all are on it. Uh, sign up for the sequence show for sure, because this is relevant to this question. For email campaigns, do you create one cold email campaign that can go to everyone, or do or do you, or is it persona-based or industry-based, et cetera? I love this question. Talk to me, Caspian. That's a, that is a really good question. I would say in an ideal world, I would have 
hyper again, and I'm a fan of hyper personalization, so I'll call that out personally. I would say in an ideal world, I would have uh, personas in in different industries. Now, those templates are probably going to be pretty similar, right? Once you meaning right, like, but they might wait. Is the template similar or is the value proposition similar? Well, I would say they're similar but different. What I mean to say is, you can probably there will probably be like if I'm emailing, for example, a CFO in cybersecurity and a CFO in uh, like revenue intelligence. I, there are going, there are going to be points of overlap between those two templates. There probably will be like, I don't know, 70% overlap between those two, but I still want to have distinct templates. If you are in, um, if someone was like building out a go-to-market function and they wanted to just start at one place, I would start with persona base because ultimately you want to sell to the person, not necessarily the, the industry. But I would say ideal state is to have templates for each persona in your target industries and i'm guessing you probably have like three or five or ten industries that you sell into so that's what i love it i'm curious i love this answer uh and you're right i think that it can go lots of different ways uh please redrop that sequence link maria if you don't mind uh we had a 404 error on that one and it got a lot of people in here that are trying to sign up for the show on sequences Uh, okay so for me i think that once again if you're going to go industry-wide I would probably think about personalizing more because you'd want to not set those to be automated. You'd want those to come into a queue so that you could take a look at them, spend five minutes on the initial email in the sequence. I think if you just personal, even if you just personalize the initial email, you're probably going to see a little bit more lift when it comes to replies uh, because that personalization rings out and it screams to your prospect, I wrote this for you. The rest of the sequence doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but on the first one, just go ahead and personalize that one. Set a timer for five minutes, sometimes three minutes will do, and you'll find a a trigger. And if you can't find a trigger, a reason for somebody to go and talk to them, you are probably need to come back to them. You need to let them go, come back to them later with something that's a little more relevant, spend a little more time. So great question there from Lila. I appreciate that. Uh, We're working on this link right here. We just put another one in there. Still the same 404. Sorry about that, guys. We are working on it uh, to get you in there. This one comes from Anonymous as well. Uh, can we talk subject lines briefly? A subject line can prevent an email or LinkedIn message from being opened. So what's your strategy for piquing their interest through subject lines? I knew we wouldn't be able to get through this without talking about subject lines. Kathy and hit me. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And funny enough, Anonymous answered their, quest, answered their question in their question. They said, can we talk about subject lines briefly? And that's the key is to be brief. I believe the studies show that it's between two and four words of the ideal subject line length. And shower to, but uh, I I'm gonna butcher his name, but I believe it's Bilal Bilal Batrawi. Bilal Batrawi, uh, yes, yeah. Um, he, he evangelizes a triple curious approach, which I'm a big fan of, where you take the three most unique parts of your email and you take a word from each. Meaning, if I was personalizing an email <clears throat> to someone and they were in a fraternity, and they played lacrosse, and then I'm selling like sales technology, I would say, like, my subject line would be Sigma Chi, comma, lacrosse, comma, more sales, or something like that, or, or uh, sales, or revenue, right? My goal is, to your point, um, my goal is to optimize for them to open the email, but I don't want to mislead them. And this, I think, is an area that a lot of sellers struggle with, <clears throat> because I think we spend so much time 
writing the email that then by the time we've written it, we're just using our standard subject line. And the challenge is you could be writing the most amazing email that's ever been written, but if no one opens it, no one's ever going to read it and you're not going to get that benefit of, you're not going to get the ROI from all that work you put in. So I love the triple curious approach. I would say if you can keep it below four words, yeah. um, there are, there, there's no substitute for trying different approaches, but that's what's worked for me. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. That's good. No. So for me, I think the subject line that screams, there's no way that this is a templated email is the win. I will often use language from a recent post if I can. Sometimes I'll yeah. even straight up say, your post about X, whatever it is, this gets yeah. crazy open rates because everybody that creates content, especially leaders, decision makers that create content, I, sometimes I evaluate software solutions for us and I put them forward to our CRO, our, our managing partners, right? I, I am an evaluator of sorts. I get a lot of these messages. The people that send me messages that reference my content, they get my attention first. I will ignore other messages so that I can give those people my attention. So if you find something that your buyer created that's relevant to your value proposition and you use that in your subject line, I guarantee an uptick in your reply rates. So try it out and it literally your post about and then whatever it is the subject line was, the open rates will improve. The open rates will improve. You still need a good CTA. We talked about that earlier. Okay, uh, Caspian, tell people where they can connect with you and uh, Maria will drop your LinkedIn profile in the chat. Yeah, no, I would say best place is LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Caspian Leakey. So yeah, you got there. You got the the link in the bottom there. But that's where I'm most responsive. Feel free to uh, connect with me. I post memes. I make a lot of jokes. I poke, I, I kind of poke fun at salespeople because I am one. So, uh, but yeah, that's the best. Amazing. Uh, if you had to, if you had to give somebody a final thought, something that they should be thinking about when it comes to their outgoing messages today, right now, coming out of the show, what would it be? I would say the best piece of advice that I ever got about email writing is, and I'm going to relate this to all of you. Ask yourself before you send an email, would I respond to this email? Mm. And because I've written emails in the past that <clears throat> if I saw them. I think that they're spammy. I think that it's unpersonalized and I think they're pretty bland and pretty vanilla. So if you would not respond to your own email, why are you sending it? So that's what I would say. And if, if you would respond to your email, chances are your prospects will. Yo, it's a matter of being able to step back and put yourself in that prospect's shoes and say, would I respond to this? If you wouldn't, I guarantee there's a chance they wouldn't as well. I want to thank everybody for coming and spending time with us. We know your time is valuable and that's why we do this for you. So you're going to get a survey after the show and it's going to ask you how, what we did, how we did. Please let us know what we can improve on and tell us what you want to see more of. We create this stuff for you. Go ahead and follow us on social media. We put all types of content out there, helping salespeople sell better every single day. That is the name of the game here at this show. It is the Sell Better Daily Sales Show. So every day we'll bring you an expert just like Caspian that will show you some moves, some tactics to help you sell better. Thank you so much for coming out today. We will see you guys next time when we bring you more stellar techniques and tactics to help you, you guessed it, sell better. Have a good day, everybody. Go get them. Thanks, everyone.